So how did it all start? Well, uh, how did Twice Upon a Rhyme start? Yeah, yeah. Run, all right. Well, I, I haven't heard the story. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, in a sense, it started back in the 1950s when I first started listening to the radio. Alan Freed, Murray the K on WINS. And so we're talking about 1957. I was 10 years old. Hello, everybody. How are you all? This is yours truly, Alan Freed. Get your dancing shoes on and welcome to the rock and roll dance party. And once I started listening to those shows, there was nothing more important to me in the world. I, I was also reading science fiction, you know, other things that would play a role in my life. But there's something about music that was just mesmerizing. If I travel to the past to change your mind, so you love me then and you love me now. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bear Tone Podcast. My name is Lucas and I am one of the producers of this show. It's been a while since we've put one of these out, so uh, thanks for tuning back in. We actually have a few episodes in the can right now, so uh, keep an eye out over the next few weeks and we're going to finish those up and we're going to release them. Today's episode is one we recorded a while back with a man named Paul Levinson. Not only is he a proficient songwriter, Paul's also a professor at Fordham University in New York, as well as a successful science fiction writer. Last year, Paul recorded his first album since 1972 with the Old Bear Crew, and it's out now. It's called Welcome Up, Songs of Space and Time. You're going to hear a few voices on this one. Uh, Paul, Steve Padden, uh, Chris Hoisington, and myself, we all got in a room and hung out for a while and talked, so uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Paul Levinson. Except when they brushed against your sweet face If I traveled to the past to change your mind So you love me then and you love me now Would I have known to travel back in the first place? Now, one of the things about me is whenever I really love something, after a while, I not only love it as a fan, but I begin thinking, how can I you know, make some of this myself? Yeah. So I think it's a good thing for the world that, for example, I didn't love like nuclear physics, because <laughs> I probably would have blown up the world already you know, if I tried my hand at that. But uh, after listening you know, for a couple of years to this music, I began singing it with some of my friends, and uh, we had all kinds of you know, good times, including once we were singing under the L, as it's called. It's an elevator, elevated train uh, in the Bronx where we lived. Mm. And uh, I and Stu Nittickman and Ira Margolis were singing uh, some songs. We hadn't yet been writing any of our own songs. And a police officer actually pulls up in a car, gets out of the car, and we all look at each other, and I'm thinking, okay, this is it. You know, we're going to be arrested, but it was worth it, you know. And much to my amazement, you know, the uh, officer looks at us and said, well, is, is that harmony you guys are trying to sing? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, you, you know, like a sixth would sound really good here. Or you might want to try a seventh over what you're doing. And after a few minutes, he was singing with us. Uh, that to me was like, you know, you don't need any more evidence than that you know, about the magic of music. 
Uh, and, and so eventually we actually formed a group called the New Outlook. And so now we're like into the early 60s, the mid 60s. We recorded, uh, you know, a bunch of things in the studio. Nothing really much happened. We were playing at various places. Uh, but at this point, you know, in my life, I knew that I wanted to do something uh, with music. And actually, the three of us, one day we were singing in, in Central Park on a Sunday, and two people walk up to us, and we, we can see they're digging the music. Neither was a police officer, so that was a good sign. And uh, they, they basically began talking to us, and it turned out this was Ellie Greenwich, who had written a huge number of songs, mm. uh, actually with Jeff Barry, but the two had split up, and she had teamed up with another guy, Mike Rashkow. And so to make a long story short about that, they signed us to Atlantic Records. We had, we had two uh, records put out. Uh, they probably sold together about 14 copies, period. So in other words, not, they weren't exactly hit records. Uh, but now I really knew that I wanted uh, you know, to do something more with this. And this is really where Twice Upon a Rhyme starts. Because although I'd written a lot of songs with Stu Nittickman, who was the, you know, the main other singer in The New Outlook, uh, and I started writing a lot of songs myself, at some point I met this guy, Ed Fox, and we instantly hit it off. He playing music, me writing lyrics. So I wrote a song, Looking for Sunsets in the Early Morning. And I came up with the title, and I said, oh, man, that's a great title. And he was just like, you know, playing some kind of music on his piano. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote the rest of the lyrics. And we did all of that in like literally 10 minutes. And wow. we began writing a whole bunch of other songs. So now we're getting like into the late 60s, early 70s. And Ed and I are saying, you know what? We have like about 20 or 30 songs. We ought to go in and record an album of this. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a very, very important part of the story. Both of us were incredible cheapskates. I probably still am. And like, you know, the last thing we wanted to do, is we had, you know, recorded stuff in some big studios. And even back then, you know, they charged like $100, $150 an hour. That would have quickly bankrupted both of us. Mm -hmm. So instead, we went around to these small studios and basically said to them, look, well, we have a bunch of songs. We want to work on an album. If you'd give us the time, uh, you know, we would give you a cut of, you know, where, whatever we made yeah. from the album. The first place we went to was a place called A1 Recording Studios, and the connection with Atlantic helped there because the guy who was running that studio was a, a man by the name of Herb Abramson, who f was one of the founders of Atlantic Records in the mm. 1950s. So he instantly liked our music, and we recorded a bunch of stuff you know, in his studio, a bunch of songs in other studios, and eventually we had 13 songs that we really loved. 
And by the way, the album was an incredible assortment of characters. For example, we had a guy playing sax uh, and clarinet by the name of Boris Midney. He later went on to have a sort of, I guess, uh, disco punk career. This guy was a refugee from the Soviet Union. And, and there's a great story behind that. He was a famous clarinet player in the Soviet Union. But listen to this. He had an affair with Nikita Khrushchev's secretary. Nikita Khrushchev was like the premier of the Soviet Union. And Khrushchev got furious because he thought that this guy Boris was trying to like get information out of him. So he had to basically leave the country. You know, so this is like, so this is what, and then like we we dragged all kinds of people, and we got like you know, you know people like just like kids from school to play violin parts, and so we put the whole album together, and then we we brought it around to a bunch of record companies, and um, you know some of the companies liked it, but another thing, and after all these years, I haven't changed all that much, but I was worse back then. Like, uh, you know, we were incredibly impatient. You know, we, we expected, like, the first A&R person to say, oh, man, this is great. Hey, I'm going to give you a big advance for putting it out. And we just didn't have, you know, the patience to wait. So eventually, Ed and I looked at each other and said, look, you know, we can scrounge together enough money to put this album ourselves, out yeah. ourselves. You know, we'll get our families to contribute, you know, friends. You know, it was before Kickstarter and, you right. know, crowdfunding, but that was the idea. We did, and we eventually put out the album. And what did I say? The, the, that first record on Atlantic sold 14 copies? Yeah. Well, when Twice Upon a Round was first released, I think it sold the negative number of copies. I think we got more <laughs> copies back in the mail than we sent out. important thing I just want to mention which led to this sort of career change for me you know real uh, you know sea change in what I was doing is right around in 1971 as a matter of fact um, Paul McCartney uh, came out with one of his first solo albums after the Beatles had broken up in fact it was his second album and the Village Voice had a scathing criticism of the album and in fact, the, the guy who wrote the criticism, he was then, he still is known as the Dean of Rock Critics. And I thought his critique of McCartney's album was just completely wrong. So I wrote a scathing letter to the editor. I never expected them to publish it. And sure enough, a couple of weeks went by, nothing happened, nothing happened. One day, I go down to my mailbox and I see there's a, you know, something from the Village Voice. I say, what's this? Probably a letter saying, you better leave town. You wrote such a you know, scathing letter. Instead, there's a check for $65 and a letter saying, hey, this is so good. We, we want to do more than publish it as a letter. We want to actually publish it as an article in the Village Voice. We hope that's OK. Wow. wow. So 
Yeah, and so that was the beginning of my career really as a published writer. Mm -hmm. And so when Twice Upon a Rhyme didn't hit right away, I sort of segued from being a songwriter, singer, record producer into writing about music. And then, you know, I went back to school and eventually got my PhD and became a professor. I mean, that's still a piece of cake as a job. Like you walk into a room and you talk about things you're interested in anyway, and everyone in the room is hanging on your every word. I mean, you know, it beats working for a living. So, uh, and meanwhile, you know, twice upon a rhyme, by and large, the only human beings who heard it were my wife, Tina. And then we had two kids. They heard it plenty. Uh, and, you know, they all said they loved it, but on the other hand, you know, they were a little biased. <laughs> and then to sort of bring this into the, more to the current age, in 1999, Tina was online. I mean, this is 1999, it's before social media, but there was like the very early stages of the internet. And Tina says, look at this, you know, and there's like a list of lost cult classics that have been published somewhere by someone <laughs> in California. And there's Twice Upon a Rhyme. No <laughs> I remember saying, well, <laughs> they're right about being lost. You know, about being a classic, I'm not so sure. And uh, is it a cult record? Hey, I'll take it. You know. uh, and, and this is like a classic case of what I've learned. Like, all you need is like one domino. And mm -hmm. it like knocks into another domino. And mm -hmm. then things start happening. So it, it turns out that somebody in Japan uh, saw this listing. They were in California shortly afterwards, and they, they hunted down a copy of Twice Upon a Rhyme, I guess like one of the eight copies that were sold. <laughs> they found it at a record store in California. And basically, they took it back to Japan. And the next thing we know, like around 2002, there's a magazine called Record, Col record Collect Collectors or something uh, published in Japanese. And guess what? Somebody calls me and says, hey, you know, they knew somebody in Japan. Your album has been given a major spread in this magazine. <laughs> I said, what? They must have the wrong Paul Levinson. <laughs> and we get a copy of the magazine. We get a friend to translate it to us. And wow, you know, so these, you know, in Japan, this magazine had reviewed Twice Upon a Ride saying it's indeed a lost cult classic, you know, brilliant, you know, heartwarming human music, naturalistic sounds. I mean, <laughs> you know, I couldn't have written a better article about my album than these people did. Uh, and that's really, you know, what started uh, the whole thing going. And then, like, one thing led to another. Uh, it, it began uh, being picked up, you know, by other magazines. Uh, eventually in Korea, and that's not, not surprising because Korea and Japan, there's a lot of interchange in their cultures and people. Uh, I got called, like, maybe like 2009 by a, uh, a record label called Big Pink Records. Uh, it's a Korean record label saying, hey, we'd, we'd love to put out a CD version of your album and maybe add a couple of bonus tracks. And, you know, they paid me actually some money. I said, sure. They were able to make a copy off the master. Uh, not off the master, just off a good copy of the, uh, of the original vinyl. I actually couldn't find the master. Uh, and then that led to a Japanese record company doing the same about a year later. And then about two years after that, uh, a guy in England by the name of Anthony 
Nyland sends me a note and saying, hey, you know, I, I'm starting a record company. I, I want to put out an EP, just two, three songs from Twice Upon a Rhyme. Which would you recommend? And I write back to him saying, hey, I'm thrilled. I need a little time to think about this. I'm not sure which two or three I would recommend. Yeah. Uh, and then he writes right back to me and says, you know what? You, you were right and I was wrong. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I'm not going to ask you to like pick out two or three. How about I just put out the whole album? How about I remaster it, put it out? And so that's what he did. His company, is called, his company actually has two names. One of them is Whiplash Records. The other is Sound of Salvation. So it was like, both, it was like put out you know, twice by each uh, record company. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, I, at this point, I begin, you know, sending, you know, copies of the music out to radio stations and so on. So I have a list of radio stations that have played or are currently playing Twice Upon a Rhyme. Uh, and that, uh, you know, comes to about 45, 50 stations at this point. In fact, just the other day, a station, uh, I think in Hawaii, started playing one of the songs, You Were Everywhere, and it came up on a search. into the record and tried to think if uh, I found Paul on Facebook like his Facebook page I think I initially said you know I'm a, real, I'm a fan of Twice Upon a Rhyme just wondering if you're still making music or making records and or writing songs and he had said yeah I actually am writing songs and so he sent me some of the stuff he was working on the first song I listened to was Alpha Century which is one of the songs that we uh, worked on this week. And um, what was great about that song was, I mean, the demo is probably, of all the, all the songs we recorded, the demo probably holds as true to the demo version as that song. And um, immediately when he started singing, I just got this like smile on my face, like, wow, this is really good. This is like, he hasn't lost a beat from 1969 when Twice Upon a Rhyme happened upon the world, and now he's still writing this this record. So we immediately got on the phone, and you know, come to find out that Paul is a, an accomplished science fiction writer, and we, we started talking about science fiction, and then I was like, hey, what if we did a record on science fiction songs? And he was like, that's great, because my fans would probably love that, all the people who re- that have been reading my books and come and talk to me at conventions. Yeah, it's been it's been a joy so far just doing the record with these guys and um, exploring what feels like we're hitting new territory with it. So it's been one of the uh, greatest moments of my life, really, mm-hmm. these past three days, because, you know, it's one thing to write a song. So even though I'm still writing songs now, but the experience of seeing and hearing and feeling something that you just created out of thin air. Suddenly, you know, the music fills the room 
And one of the things about Old Bear Records, I mean, they have extraordinary talent all around them. I mean, Chris does unbelievable harmonies. Uh, every track we've done has Chris's harmonies. And although Chris and I uh, literally just met each other three days ago, uh, if I had a magic wand that I could bring into being like a harmony section of like three <laughs> voices that were perfectly suited to my voice and the themes of the songs, it would be Chris. Three times, even four times. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Steve uh, is an incredibly talented drummer, piano player. I mean, I can barely play one instrument. This guy plays, I don't know, about 12 <laughs> instruments. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Thompson is, is his name. I mean, he's like an extraordinary uh, guitarist and also a multi-talented musician. So, I mean, all this just came together in, in three days and it's the fulfillment of so many things. He had written a novel called Borrowed Tides, um, where it's a bunch of people get on a, a spaceship to, to go to the star Alpha Centauri, and then they end up going back to Earth, but uh, it's been eight years, but when they get back to Earth, no time has passed for people on Earth. So there's like all these repercussions and things that happen on the journey. So if you haven't read that book, uh, I highly recommend it. And it was the first record where we actually used a piece of literature as a template for the record. Hmm. So everything that we did on this record somehow mirrors that record. So when they're traveling back in time to Earth is the sequence in the book, which is like a third way through the book where Cloudy Sunday happens, where it's an earlier version of Paul singing the track actually yeah. from the 60s. Whoa. So it's like, it's almost That's like really this cool. record was destined yeah. to happen 40 years later with all of this. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you twofold question, and then I want to ask Steve something too. But uh, talk a little bit about Borrowed Tides and, and a little bit about maybe how we use that template to record the record and like how, how we're kind of sequencing the record kind of around that book and what that book means to you. and how it reflects this project. Well, the book means an enormous amount to me, and I can tell you a bunch of significant things about the book. First of all, the original title was The River That Flows Both Ways, which actually <laughs> comes from a folk song that, that a guy in New York wrote, I don't know, about 20, 30 years ago. On a river that flows both ways. And it's a really you know, nice song, uh, and it's like, you know, the, the, the people who are singing it are like the Native Americans, the Algonquins who lived, you know, on the Hudson River. And I, I can't remember the guy's name, but, you know, you can look it up and, and see it. So uh, that was the working title of the book 
you know, for a while, the novel. Um, when I started writing it, uh, I had already become pretty well known as a writer of, of science fiction short stories. So one of my stories, The Chronology Protection Case, was nominated for a whole bunch of awards. Um, that was a story about uh, scientists who begin dying in mysterious ways, and the only thing they have in common is that they're working on a time travel project. Uh, and then another novel, Loose Ends, was, which also dealt with time travel. That was nominated for a whole bunch of awards. I eventually did win some awards, but at this point they were just uh, <laughs> nominated. Uh, and both those have been reprinted all over the place, and the chronology protection case is even used uh, in an English class uh, in a small college outside of Illinois. And every year I get like, you know, like a check from the college because that's, you know, they, they you know, reproduce, uh, you know, copies of, of, of the story. So it's not enough to retire on, but it's really, you know, it's nice. So, um, you know, this, you know, meant a lot to me. I wrote this and uh, I met a guy at science fiction conventions who sadly passed away about two years ago you know, in the saddest way, he was perfectly healthy. He was walking up a flight of stairs. He was carrying a bookcase. He fell down and just didn't make mm. it. I mean, it's just, you know, mm. terrible. But um, I, I gave him a copy of uh, The River That Flows Both Ways. And he said, you know, I really, you know, love this. L let me think about it. Uh, and then two things happened. One, he said, you know what? I want to publish this, but... Um, because you're so well known for some of your stories, which feature a character by the name of Dr. Phil D'Amato, a New York City forensic detective who gets involved in all these crazy cases, let's make your first novel a Phil D'Amato novel, in which you expand from a short story into a novel. So David Hartwell was one of the brightest uh, people I've ever known, and a fabulous editor in many ways, and he was right. The, the Silk Code finally did win an award. It won the Locus Award for Best First Novel of 1999. But then for the second novel, David Hartwell said, all right, let's publish The River That Flows Both Ways. But just one thing, the title is too long. You know, we're going to want to publish this not only as a hardback, but a paperback. So can you come up with another title? So that's how I came up with the title of Borrowed Tides. But the connection to, to, to our new album uh, is, you know, multifaceted. In the first place, uh, as Chris, you know, uh, said, the, the story is about the first starship to Alpha Centauri from Earth. It's traveling at half speed of light, so it takes eight, Alpha Centauri is about four light years away. Uh, it takes about eight years to get there and eight years uh, to come back. So that's why I came up with the title Borrowed Tides, because it's like a tide going out and a tide returning. But the reason that I wrote the lyric to Alpha Centauri, which I then sent to Pete Rosenthal, which he wrote the music to, this is around 2002, was because of Borrow Tides, because that had now been released and people were interested in it. And even back then I had this idea, why don't I somehow bring together my music and my science fiction? I should also mention, by the way, that another really great coincidence, just about seven or eight months ago, I... Uh, 
published an anthology called Peter Brown Called. I got the title from the ballad of John and Yoko. There's like, Peter Brown called to say you can make it okay, you can get married in Gibraltar and Spain. Anyway, so I call this Peter Brown Called, and it's basically a collection of science fiction stories that have to do with music. So, you know, th this was something that was always of interest to me, but one of the things that immediately, you know, commanded my attention when I began talking to Chris and corresponding with him is he was saying, you know what, we should use Borrow Tides as a template. In other words, we'll put together an album of songs which could fit in to the story of Borrow Tides. And that basically helped me select the songs. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better fit if I traveled back in time. Tossetti is an alternate place that you could go to instead of borrow tides and then like even songs like I knew you by heart that I you know that's another one I wrote with Pete if you think about what that song is all about it's about someone you know who meets someone else and and feels that he knew her already before he met her. And so that's a kind of time travel too, right? It's sort of an emotional, romantic time travel. And so what we're, what we're doing with these songs, each one has like a different place in the uh, novel. And one of the things I'm gonna do when I get back home, uh, again, an excellent suggestion from Chris, is you know record a bunch of excerpts, my reading excerpts from Bar Ties, and that's gonna be interspersed uh, you know, into the album. Steve too like what and, and you like from listening to the record what what your what your guys thoughts are maybe on like what you thought of twice upon a rhyme and your thoughts on this new record and the things that you loved about it or the things that stuck out to you um, well I think for me personally one of the strongest takeaways of this whole process has been the transcending of the limitations that I've gotten used to um, having a career in music there's a lot of uh, a lot of things about music nowadays that sort of you you lose in an effort to default to what is working for me with this process I've been very naturally able to let go of a lot of that way of thinking of like, well, what's gonna, what's gonna work? What's gonna, um, what should I do? What, it's, it's been so freeing to meet someone like Paul and immediately connect on these deep levels and express that musically without any concern. I mean, the, the fact that like Paul was saying, some of these ideas started 50 years ago. I mean, already I'm like, I'm not thinking of, you know, like that, that's bigger than any scope of 
mentality that I will typically approach projects with, um, not to take away from other things that I do, but immediately there was just something, there was a story that was so big and so long in the making that that tapping into, I right away was feeling this energy with this project. And um, to me, that's perfectly encapsulates what drew me to music in the first place in my life. I mean, this is something that is so much bigger than anything else on this earth. And unfortunately, you know, trying to make a living in a lot of things that fall under the label and umbrella of music, that feeling hasn't always carried into a lot of stuff that I've been involved with. Um, so on a very personal level, in a setting like this, I mean, ah, oh, there was just so much about what Paul had already done in music and the way that when Chris showed me his music and Chris's excitement about it, I resonated with and I was like, okay, this, this is what, this is what I'm talking about musically and getting to know Paul and hearing the story. It was like, it touched me very deeply emotionally and personally, which comes out in my playing. So that, on a personal level, I, I was, I'm immensely grateful to have been a part of that, for sure. I'm often asked, uh, you know, questions, you know, along these lines, you know, what are the most satisfying peak experiences uh, for you as someone who, you know, writes music, writes lyrics, writes science fiction, you know, goes on television talking about media and politics and so on. And the truth is there are really very few you know, peak experiences, uh, other than, you know, the satisfaction you get from writing, and other than the satisfaction of if something hits, you know, in the media, and, and you see that. But, I mean, what Steve just said, it means everything to me. That's what writers of music, of songs, of poetry, of stories, of anything that you create that, that comes from your heart and your soul and your brain, that's ultimately what we live for And because you, you want to touch other people. And anytime you create something, you know, it's certainly true you're doing it first and foremost to please yourself because if it didn't please you, you wouldn't show it to anyone. And that's great and that's very important too and that's very nourishing. But ultimately, you want other people you know, to, to feel that. And, you know, Steve and I were just, uh, you know, talking before the podcast. You know, there are lots of tragedies in history that we now know in retrospect. Uh, you know, Vincent van Gogh, who's now regarded as one of the greatest painters in human history. He basically, nobody liked his work when he was alive because it just didn't make the right connection. And, uh, you know, there are lots of artists, you know, like that. There are lots of musicians. For every Beatles, you know, for every Paul McCartney, there, there are 
hundreds of people who might have been just as talented, but they just didn't make the right recording at the right time. So, uh, you know, what Steve has just said is, you know, just, you know, incredibly gratifying and, you know, uh, brings me great joy. So, mm. thank you, Steve. You know, I've realized for years that it's an interesting thing as far as this like almost mechanization and like flattening out of our humanity that the people who are most likely to be able to get on top of that and out of that and you know express their humanity are either people at the very top or people who, they're not at the very bottom, but they're not yet caught up into like what the expectations are. So I mean, in, in an odd sort of way, and not at all to compare what we just did with Paul McCartney, although he always has been and will be an inspiration for me, but I can't help thinking about his latest album, Egypt Station, where he basically, you know, went in and it's it's a, a surprisingly great album. Surprising because look, he hasn't had a hit record in years. You know, he still performs beautifully. He still wrote those great records, uh, th those great songs. You know, uh, 150, who knows how many. Um, but he has a certain freedom. He was able to go into whatever studio or studios and just do whatever he wanted. There was nobody there that he had to answer to. It was just him and basically his, his entire creative process could in effect be expressed. And I think we had that here yeah. in the past three days because we didn't have anyone we had to answer to. I mean, it was just like a bunch of people who love music who have you know mutually supportive talents, and and we were able to do this. And I think that that's an extraordinary thing. And I think that people who are like you know bigger studios, like you go into like a big studio. I was in Electric Ladyland a few years ago to you know listen to someone. You know it was exciting in one sense. You know, it was like Jimi Hendrix's studio and so on. But compared to what we had here at Old Bear Records, it was almost like being in a hospital. It was like so antiseptic, you know, it was gleaming in these various rooms or some like, you know, strange kind of hotel. I can't even really, uh, but, but this, what we, you know, had up here, I mean, Tina and I were talking about it. It was just such, you know, a human experience, uh, you know, from the moment we walked in. And I think that came across in the music. Luke, you kind of walked in with Twice Upon a Rhyme. Was there anything that stuck out to you about that record? 
Yeah. The, or just as a whole. Maybe. Yeah, the the last song. The, one, the llama will be like the Children, don't you know I, it's past your bedtime. I, yeah. this, this, you know how we have like a little something, like some words before Samantha? Mm-hmm. Well, before the llama, yes. there's like a little conversation. Yeah. Yes. Hey, hey, hey Paul, yeah. what's a llama? <laughs> Is it a camel? That's basically, no, no, no. <laughs> He's a man who came down with a long white beard. Nobody knows where he came again. By the way, that, that's like complete gibberish. I don't right. even know what that means. Right, right. No, just like babbling. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we put that in there. Hey, 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 Paul, hey, Paul, what's a llama? 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 You know, what is it? Is it a camel? No, what is it? It's not a camel. It's, it's a person. I lived a long time ago in a distant country called Tibet. Oh, no, he was he was a man with a long white beard. And every year he used to come down from the snowy hills. He used to bring the kids presents and food and flowers and everything. And everyone really had a good time. And but one day he disappeared. He, he just he never go? came yeah. again. Nobody knows where he came again. But years ago I heard this old story from a, from a man. A man? Who is this man? Nobody knows what his name was. His name was Hawaiian Hawaiian. Yes, Hawaiian Hearns being visiting Somebody you know, put a tape on the machine and was able to work with the machine. And when they played the tape, they heard the story about the llama. Yeah, but how did the story go? Like? Well, here, I'll, I'll play the tape for you now. Put it on now. Okay. Let me just put it on. Here we go. Here's the tape. conversation with Chris and I was sitting at a coffee shop and um, he told me that we were going to be doing this and it was happening and so I started looking up some stuff and, and doing a little research and I listened to that song and I was like this is just this is awesome I, I <laughs> from that moment on I was just so excited to be able to um, experience this recording but then I also stumbled upon this <laughs> this video of um, of you on the O'Reilly show oh or God, O'Reilly yes. factor yes. Yeah. or is it called O'Reilly factor? Yes, the O'Reilly factor. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. um, and I just like, I was, I, I remember as a little kid, um, seeing, um, that on TV and, and thinking just like, uh, man, that guy's kind of, that guy seems a little like he's kind of mean to people. <laughs> and, and then it's been, it's been since then, since I've even, seen his face so then when i was watching that video on youtube i it just it made me it made me chuckle can you just tell us a little bit about that experience absolutely he is very mean to people <laughs> uh and he was mean to people this is like i mean remember i said i never say no to an interview yeah so request so here it was whatever it was like in 2004 2005 i get a call on the phone and you know who is this hey i'm a producer uh with bill o'reilly's show uh <laughs> you know you you know, Professor Levin said, yeah, I am. Well, look, uh, we know this is last minute. We would love you to come on the show tonight to talk about, and I couldn't believe actually what they were saying, there was a newscaster uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, who Mm went down to Florida, uh, got drunk, uh, entered a wet t-shirt contest, (laughs) took all her clothes off, 
Some creep in the audience, you know, videotaped mm -hmm. it. Even in those days, they had like some kind of primitive video camera. Then contacted her station in Youngstown, which promptly accepted her tearful resignation. So this is what Fox and O'Reilly are doing a story on. Why they're calling me, I don't know. But hey, yeah. Professor Lemson, we, we'd like you to come on and talk about this. You know, do you have anything to say about this? So again, I didn't know what I was going to say about it, but in the back of my mind, thinking, I'm sure I'll think of something, but uh, you <laughs> know, I go, I go on the show, and you know, O'Reilly goes to this whole song and dance. Oh, this woman, she's disgraced herself, and you know, and I'm basically saying, what, what do you mean she disgraced herself? Well, this now is Paul Levinson, chairman of the Fordham University Department of Communication Study. Now, you think they they shouldn't have let her go here? No, people are entitled to have private lives, and journalists are people. Private lives? Yeah, I mean, she should be fired if she failed to do something in performance of her profession. She did something in her private life. She didn't hurt anybody. Mm. Shouldn't people be judged on what they do in their professional life? Mm. You know, if anyone is wrong, it's the guy who, you know, took this, uh, mm, you know, yeah. video of her. Yeah. You know, she didn't do anything wrong at all. And, you know, mm. I, I looked him in the eye and I said, don't you think... Uh, people should be judged on you know what they do in their public lives not on what they do in their private lives mm. and he said no 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 and you know <laughs> you know trust me professor you know we'll never see this woman uh, on television again and there was like maybe like a split second left i could see the show was ending and i just you know you know, looked at O'Reilly and said, we'll probably see her on Fox News, right, in a couple of weeks. You know? <laughs> and O'Reilly's like steaming yeah. and the show ends. You do. Don't do it. I think we'll, we'll probably see her on Fox News. Uh, no, we'll probably months. see her in yeah. uh, The Bachelorette is where we're going to see her. We're not going to see her on Fox News, believe me. Thank you, Professor. Next, we're going to... You know, I could say, I mean, he actually did invite me to be on the show a few more times, but he was livid that I got... And meanwhile, the... Uh, vice president of our university, governor of John Hollowitz, he was watching this because he, you know, <laughs> former university professor, and he was thrilled. And the next day, awesome. he gets like a videotape of this, and he basically makes like 10 copies, sends it to all the deans. <laughs> this is the way, if you ever go on the O'Reilly Factor, you stand up to this bully, and blah, 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 blah. So, awesome. yeah, I, I had a good time with that. Anything else you want to add or? Uh, you know, I, I would just say again, that even this podcast was just a perfect ending to like a perfect three days. Mm. Awesome. And, uh, you know, it's really been magical. And, uh, you know, you know, the world consists, there are a lot of things that are not good in the world. Uh, and it is rare and wonderful when you mm. can find something that's truly good. Mm. And that's how I feel about this. Mm. Amen. I knew you by Thanks for listening to Bear Tone Podcast. Keep an eye out for upcoming episodes that we are going to be releasing over the next couple weeks. We have some more really good ones coming your way. 
The show is produced by Anthony Hoisington and myself, Lucas Iverson. Thanks to Chris Hoisington and Steve Padden for being a part of this conversation. Uh, thanks to Sarah Bridgman for creating the artwork for the show. And finally, thank you to Paul Levinson for taking the time to chat. Bye.